Welcome to Bonehead. I'm Joe Lewis. <laughs> what? <laughs> the hands. <laughs> you know, I need to stop it because Kevin Smith does it, and I already get too much. Oh, really? I was watching him on... Um, Start the time with Joe. Yes. Start the intro. Start the intro. <laughs> yeah. We'll come back after Joe's story time's over. <laughs> let's, get into, let's get into the dance mode for the intro. Back with Bonehead, my name's Joe Lewis. Once again, to the left of me is... <laughs> your kung fu grip, apparently. <laughs> to the left of me is... <laughs> and James Thomas. And James Thomas. And today we have Blake Best. Hi, guys. <laughs> I'm drinking some tea. Once again, my voice is coming and going, and that's probably, if it's going, people are happy about it. It is quieter in the office. <laughs> it is. Oddly enough, James and I work together. <laughs> Blake, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How, how are you guys doing outside of your vocal issues? How are I'm you doing? doing fantastic. <laughs> Dave Ramsey, better than we deserve. Yeah. <laughs> it's the weather. The weather keeps changing, so everybody right now is trying to figure out what their body is, just trying to figure out what to do. Well, yeah, now, if you look out through the French doors, it was raining outside. Yeah, I, just watched a, I just watched a bird do a kamikaze match into your... Uh, and that's when everybody tunes into Bonehead to <laughs> see as us talk about the weather. <laughs> because the weather outside I is... Frightful. And the snow is so... I'm not doing this. All right. So anyway, you know what? My knee's acting up. That's oh, you're getting old. <laughs> Blake, we're so sorry. Uh, we haven't actually talked in a week, so we we kind of probably should hang out and get a lot of this out before we ever <laughs> start talking to our guests. Blake, size 2020, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> you're a not mine, if you can see. <laughs> renowned oh. writer, musician, ranking tour. Correct. <laughs> I just wanted to throw some things out yeah, there. Yeah, just making stuff up. Making stuff up. I love your woodworking. <laughs> That's a joke. So, before we get started... I'm still waiting on my canoe! <laughs> before we get started behind you, and I know we'll get to all your interests and all those things beforehand, what's all on the shelf there? Because I see some Nightmare on Elm Street things, a couple of things that you and I were talking about that I have myself, because if you can see in the boneheads... Basement, there's tons the of collectibles. The bone cave. Chad calls it a dork hole. It's a dork hole. It's not a man cave, it's a dork hole. Well, dork hole sounds a lot dirtier than it should. Yes. <laughs> Imagine a hobbit hole only used oh. for S&M. Oh, no, no, no. Come over and check out my bone cave. With bone the same cave. very big feet. Though you really do have small feet for a minute. I, but I do. <laughs> Although I did get a complaint earlier this week that I should never show my feet on camera again. Is that really a complaint? Uh, from it's a, more of a suggestion. I, it was, a, I, in my well, opinion. It goes really well with the fact that you should never say, oh, man, you should come see my door call, man. It's it's cleaned up really nicely. <laughs> Honestly, there's no <laughs> way to say that. Because of the cons and stuff, I often find myself saying, no, you really need to stop by and see my basement. <laughs> Sounds just as <laughs> bad, brother. Gacy yeah, had a, I, a I crawl space. And, yeah, and James is right. I shouldn't was... end it with Gacy only had a crawl space, you know. <laughs> he loved his kids kept him right there um, anyway moving right along you want to go ahead and get started yeah yeah so, well go ahead okay. no what no. was the question what was the question well, we're we talking about the stuff and you were talking about the something about the shelf so, yeah. well, 
Go through it with I gotta me. I got to be... Well, let me get started, because the big thing that's no, that's been bugging me the whole time we've been talking is the torso behind you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's start... Okay. Can you guys see it better now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So let me tell you a story on that. That torso is from a movie called Road to Hell. It came out in 2008. It was done by Albert Pion, who did um, Universal Soldier. Yeah. And it was built and fabricated by Nick Benson, who worked on Nightmare on Elm Street 4 with Mick Strong. And uh, Nick did uh, the death sequence with Freddy, where the on the shoulder, the, the souls that were coming out of Freddy began yeah. attacking him. And he he uh, puppeted the uh, shoulder uh, on that. And then he also worked on the cockroach sequence with Screaming Mad George for that film. So this is one of his, this was a gift from him to me. And I will get more into that later because I gave this torso to my wife. When I got back from Las Vegas, the first uh, convention I did as a, as a guest, <laughs> I brought it home. It's her side guy. She named it Jerry. <laughs> so, um, is it anatomically correct or what? <laughs> it, it is. It even has hair around the nipples and Ooh. on the chest. I don't know if you guys, I'm going to, this is not something I usually show people because people don't see my office that often but that is in fact rooted hair there's the wow oh, oh yeah that's some craft now yet. if you're listening to us on itunes or soundcloud uh, he's showing us a torso and it really looks great uh, yeah. stop by youtube just look at that for a second if you get a chance later if you're listening to us on itunes or soundcloud and now he's, hey, kissing, he's kissing the torso the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> this member torso and and it's yes. anatomically correct it would be you what, should have seen me going through airport security with it when i came back that was fun it's what haley would call the perfect man <laughs> <laughs> did you have it in a suitcase or did you just have it thrown over your shoulder <laughs> it was in my luggage it was in my suitcase and i was, i was sweating the whole time because when i got it i was in the elevator of the uh, El Cortez uh, Hotel and Casino, and the cleaning lady was in the elevator when I got in with this garbage bag with this torso in it, because that's how you receive a torso, is in a black <laughs> garbage bag. Uh, and, I give it them fell out. open, and the torso was exposed, and she looked at me, and uh, um, I looked at her, and then I smiled, and, and then and I don't know why, but the next thing I said was, uh, have a good day. <laughs> I, I would have loved to have heard that the woman asked what's in the bag, and you just said, Dad. <laughs> the last person who asked me that question. question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a Craigslist. I'm sorry. Yeah, you I like cursed. Is there a language thing on here? I didn't realize I cursed. No, no. You're, you're, no. Yeah, that shit's fine. <laughs> that, that shit, we try okay. to keep it. Okay, now what other question did you did? What other questions, but did you gentlemen have about uh, well anything back? I have the same one you do. It was, and it's the the Freddy with the changeable masks. The Max Max effects. Max yeah. effects. I have it over here. I have mine in the box too. It's never been taken out. So it's, it's I, go ahead. It's, it's, it's no, that's a very cool collectible. And uh, I know you were probably didn't take yours out of the box, did you? No. Well, I just got it a few years ago. I can't remember. It, it was at the comic book store. <laughs> Did you get it for me? No, I told your wife to get it for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I've also got one of the giant talking Freddy Krueger dolls that were pulled from the market. That one has never been taken out. And how about this? That son of a bitch still talks. Still works. Does it really? Yeah. Let me see if I can, uh, again, I'm taking guys Road trip. here. Woo! Look, I used my hands again. <laughs> there you go. Oh, there never it is. Let me see if I can make this thing work. I've never seen that. Oh, 
It does not sound like Robert England. It sounded like it said, hi, you want nutmeg. <laughs> you know what's funny? Freddy's a barista. <laughs> double calf, double decaf. You know what's funny is, though, it's just still creepy. There's yeah. just something about... What, nutmeg? Yeah, I don't understand it either. I don't know. <laughs> Bitches and nutmeg. It's the whatever. bastard spice is what it is. <laughs> so... <laughs> So but you, yeah, just any other questions you guys have, I know you're seeing Freddy up here looking too. I have a, a Freddy head. Up that's from New Nightmare, isn't it? No, no. that's not. It's from the first Nightmare on Elm Street. It is a production piece from 1984. Oh, really? That is a stunt mask that was worn by would have been worn by Tony Caesar during the sequence. The arms stretched out across yeah, the yeah. sides of the garage. Yeah, that thing is very old. That was built and that was built by David Miller. And fabricated by him because he is the he is Freddy Krueger's original prosthetics creator. So yes, that came from him, and he uh, signed it for me. And then I've got all kind of other stuff. I've got some gloves. I've got a glove from the first film that was uh, signed by everybody. Absolutely, that is amazing. Now, where did you get that glove? How did you come by it? Uh places. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't want to give away all my secrets. But uh, no, that actually, that actually, I took that when I did a, I took that to Scarefest in Lexington. I was invited by the Nightmare cast. Mick invited me, and then of course Robert and I go way back. He knew I was coming, and then several other ones knew I was coming. So I decided to come and visit and check out the uh, convention. And yeah. when I got there, I did ended up doing a book signing. I had books with me, and people recognized me, so I did a book signing in the lobby outside of where Roberts. Uh, the room where Robert was going to be doing his photo ops. So uh, I had the glove with me, and uh, Robert just, you know, grabbed it and signed it, and then he hugged me while he was holding it, you know, right at my throat, and, uh, <laughs> because that's what Robert does. And he yeah. said, Blake, it is so good to see you. I'm seeing so much of you lately, and I am so happy that you're here. So talk with me. Spend some time with me. And I was like, okay. Because when Robert England tells you he wants to talk to you, you, you do what well, he says. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And by the way, I said it earlier about you, but it is true. And it is, and it's true about you and him. But he is a raconteur. He is a storyteller. And he can and he, talk. He, he, very, he is. And he actually is one of the first people to read the within and Razor's Edge. He had a advanced reading copy before it was bound in this beautiful cover that you see here. He had uh, uh, it bound in a, in a uh, case for him, and along with some footage that I had of his parents visiting him on the set of Nightmare 4. Oh. Um, that, she, that he didn't know was filmed, which I presented to him as a gift. And then, again, with the hugging and the blades up to my throat, you'd think I would be used to all that by now. But, again, it's, it's, it's always scary because... I'll tell you. I'll tell you something. A lot of people don't know. At that same show where I met you, Joe, mm -hmm. uh, I had a photo op with Robert. Even though I was hanging out with everybody, my wife surprised me with the birthday gift. She bought a photo op for whatever reason, and I went in there, and he got his claws tangled up in my wife's shirt. She was wearing a cut top that oh, was supposed to be cut like the tangled up, which you actually will see it in this picture here. That is my wife, and you can see his claws are actually bound up in her shirt. <laughs> and then I don't know who this smudge is on this side. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't like him. You know what? I sent Robert an invitation for my wedding when, when Lisa and I got married. And uh, he sent it back, and he's like, I'm so happy you guys get married. You know, I wish I could be. Yeah, I wish you could be there, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you said earlier that 
Nightmare on Elm Street has kind of became your life. I've yeah. got two quick questions. Out of all the yeah. stuff that you have, all the collectibles you have, are there any that that just kind of are your ultimate? Oh yeah. Thing that you're you're glad that you have. There are, and I'm going to show one to you guys, and I think only one or two other people have seen this, so this is going to be a first for anybody to see on a wider scale, and I don't know if you can see I'm it. I'm waiting. Okay. <laughs> Let me you know. need to open your eyes, Joe. Oh, shit. Oh, wow. Is that an original this, this, screenplay? This is this is Bill Forsh's on-screen shooting script from Nightmare 4 when he worked for Steve Johnson and XFX. This has got every scene that was ever devised in it, wow. including all the ones that were never filmed. Right. Oh, that's cool. And this thing is April 12th, 1988. So this has got all of the uh, third draft revisions from April 12th up until May 9th. Um, and he signed it for me. And it's still bound. And for its age, it is in still really, really good shape. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't uh, look like it has any kind of aging on it at all. Now, Blake, can Well, I... again, there is some, like the binding, and you can sort of see where it has, uh, you know, aged some. But it is still in really good shape. He sent this to me as a gift. I received it on uh, Valentine's Day of all days in my mail. I opened up my mail, and it was in there. And I was like, what the hell is this? So I opened it up, and, you know, Bill... Uh, provided a lot of things for this new book that Mick and I are working on. Yeah. So this was something he, I had no idea he was sending it. And, uh, you know, I don't get teary eyed about, about a lot of things, but when I opened it up and I saw this in here, uh, I'm not going to lie. I got very emotional because this is something that belonged to him. This is not something he had to give to me. This is not something I expected. And not only does it have his name in the company X effects, but he went ahead and signed it again. Yeah. Wow. It's nice. So that is something that uh, that is something that no one else has seen, and I doubt very few people have that. You know, an actual screen, you know, shooting script right. which he used on the set uh, that has uh, actually has uh, uh, details in it for specific uh, sequences for effects because he did a makeup application for Robert and for Rick Barker, the stuntman, and then he also did several things in Nightmare Four uh, where he uh, doubled as Freddy's gloved hand. And uh, other little things, which I'm actually going to see if I can't get him to talk to you guys sometime soon, because I think you guys would really like to talk. With oh, him. we love. Oh, yeah. We love talking to production people. It's our bread and butter. It's the thing that we enjoy the most. I mean, well, you know, and the weird thing is, is he has done so many movies, probably a lot of which you have enjoyed. He did vampire effects for the Lost Boys. Yeah. 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 He did the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the film. He did uh, the Howling. Uh, you know, he did a Howling uh, 4. Yeah. And and then he he did several others. I mean, his uh, Dead Heat. Oh, is a Dead Heat. Love and Dead Heat. I, you know, things like movies like that, and and it just it's just fantastic. The people that I've met in this journey and becoming, and you know, that's something I was telling Mick the other day. I was like, you know, we were going over a draft in the book. He said, Blake, you've got to stop writing like a fan. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're not a fan. You're a professional in this business. You don't write like a fan. Yeah. Write like a professional because I. I still think of myself as, as sort of a fan, but he considers me a professional, and, and I guess I need to start being a well, professional. And that's something that we <laughs> but, haven't even But met. no, he actually was the, one of the first people to read my Freddy Krueger origin novel and told me that he said it was, to him, as good as canon. And he actually was with me when I got inducted and, and uh, earned this award here for the book. Which this is the was Sin presented City Halloween. In, uh, Las Vegas. What is that award that the you're holding Sin up? Sin City Halloween. Sin City Halloween, uh, it is for the Hall of Horror, um, Paul Casey Entertainment. Uh, they uh, inducted me with 
Ron Chaney, who is the great grandson of Lon Chaney. Yeah. And um, also uh, several others. George P. Wilbur, who was Michael Myers in part four and part six of Halloween. And then uh, Nick Benson and, and uh, Doug Stewart. And it's just, and Mick, you know, we were all inducted for our contributions to the Nightmare on Elm Street mythology. And I think at that at that point, that's when it became more than just being a fan. It became being a professional. Right. As far as this goes. So, well, starting just... with being a fan, what do you think yeah. it is? And, and there's a documentary coming out about, um, you know, Fred uh, fans of Nightmare on Elm Street, Fred Heads and all that. Fred Heads. I, I am in that documentary. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think it is about Nightmare on Elm Street that creates such diehard fans that people keep coming back to it? I think what it is, other than Robert's amazing acting and his ability to take a script, something that's just flat on paper with good details, and then bringing it to life on a completely different level. I think besides that, it's the fact that Freddy Krueger himself is a character that you love, but you kind of hate, but you don't kind of hate. It's like you love to be disgusted by him because he... You know, he, he, what makes him happy is the destruction of innocence. He is, you know, at the first film, he was sort of this, you know, menace that was kind of not, didn't really have a sense of humor. I mean, there was some gallows humor here and there, mm -hmm. but for the most part, he was just a dark, sinister character. And then as the films went on, he sort of became this semi-comical monster mm -hmm. where he not only did he kill, but he relished in doing it and he yeah. enjoyed doing it. And his one liners like, um, uh, this is it, Jennifer, your big break in TV. Welcome to prime time, bitch. And, you know, how's this for a wet dream? And, and I've always had a thing for the whores that live in this house. And then you know, all these other lines that he said, these, these other phrases and his just general attitude as a character, not to mention, he's very interesting looking, you know, that makeup job for Robert to, to shine underneath that, that heavy makeup application. I mean, and this is just a stunt mask. Robert sat through, you know, hours and hours daily. He had in his contract, actually, no glue for his makeup after 12 hours. So whatever was hanging off of his face after 12 hours was just hanging. And that came from Lou Lazaro, who did his uh, makeup on Nightmare 1 and Nightmare uh, 5 and 6. David Miller. So, I mean, you know, you've got a person that's acting under this um, insane amount of makeup. You've got the claws, which are cool looking, but are also very heavy. I mean, those gloves weigh in between five to seven pounds, depending mm -hmm. on the one that, from whatever film it is. And, um, you know, that hot sweater. And then, you know, being in a hot, heated environment, you know, a boiler room, which in the first film was Lincoln Heights Jail, or, you know, the power station in Nightmare 4 uh, out there in uh, California. And uh, it just, you've got somebody that's willing to shine and just bring the best that they have to offer through just extreme adversity and, and a shooting schedule that's psychotic. I mean, can you imagine getting up at three or four o'clock in the morning, getting in a makeup chair, and then getting made up for four hours, and then going and acting for 12 to 16 hours, and then having that shit peeled off your face for three hours afterwards? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <clears throat> but yeah, it's just the character, the character himself is one that people... I would venture to say probably more people know who Freddy is than they do any other figure in like history. And, and I mean, take that however you want. I mean, you could go out on the street and ask, you know, a kid to name, you know, uh, several presidents and they might name some. And, 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 but if you go up and show a kid a picture of Freddy Krueger, odds are they know 
I agree with that. I think he's right there with Frankenstein. Actually. Oh yeah, Frankenstein and Dracula. He, he is. And yeah, and he's the first real monster in modern film history. Modern I agree. cinema with a personality. Yeah. Like, you know, I know offense against Michael Myers, but if you discounting the remakes before those, he didn't talk. He was just nondescript kind of silent menace. The same with Jason. Yeah. And, well, and, and as imposing and physically, you know, scary and, and, uh, and imposing as they all are, Freddie having, you know, a smart ass remark to go with his awful, disgusting, right. melted face and his what is, <laughs> he has love and all that stuff. And just, just amazing. He has such an interesting way of killing, too. I mean, I have to stay away from Camp Crystal Lake, and I don't have to worry about Jason. I have to, you know, there's, but there's something about... Don't go about, to Haddonfield, Illinois, and you'll be fine with Michael Myers. Yeah, but there's right. something and about... And more it. importantly, stay the hell out of Texas. <laughs> yes, Texas. Yes, that's right, or you'll become a victim of the Hewitt family. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but I've got to sleep. Yeah, you have to sleep. Everyone has to sleep. And to me, that is such a unique approach to, to uh, an angle for a character. You, everyone gets so tired. I mean, and you guys would know. I mean, you do, you know, in your professional lives, I know what you guys do as far as, you know, uh, having keeping late hours and having to look over documents and, and do all that kind of stuff. And you're having to drink coffee and just basically inhale caffeine to stay awake. And uh, you fall asleep. You know, you get tired. You give in to your exhaustion. And that's when he gets you. He, he comes in when you're the most susceptible. And it's, it's such a to paraphrase Robert England, it's such a violation. It is. It is. To get into your head, I mean, to just, to fuck with you in your head. Wes Craven had a very novel idea. Yeah. Uh, Just a very novel idea that nobody... And that's one thing, when I do these seminars, I do these conventions, a lot of fans ask me, it's like, Blake, what did you, you know, what, what is your connection? What would you say to Wes Craven? What, what is your whole connection to this, you know, as a, not only a professional in the industry, but also before that as a fan. And, you know, my background was I grew up in a broken home. It was, you know, it was a lot of physical abuse. And, and basically these movies were a way for me to kind of escape the horror that was the reality I was living at the time and kind of live vicariously through someone else. And, yeah. and uh, frankly, what I saw in the movies was a hell of a lot less scary than what was going on at home to me. And I was, kind of blown away by the fact that these characters all united their own well-being notwithstanding and they you know they faced their tormentor they faced the they faced freddie krueger they faced the thing that was causing them the most pain and they were like this is it i'm going to give it everything even if it takes my life even if i die you're gonna know that i'm not going to be afraid and i'm not going to let you do this to me willingly and i think that was a powerful message and in, 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 uh for fans all over i know that it gave me courage to stand up to my stepfather and yeah. tell him that you're not going to hit me anymore you know the last time he put his hands on me i was 18 years old and um i hit him back you know and he drew back because he wasn't expecting it. and i said you will never ever put the weight of your hand on me again and I just, if Wes was here, you know, and I tell people there is a dedication in this book and I want to read it as I, as I have it, because I think it really does sum up. Um, it really sums up everything as far as, as far as what I feel about this. Um, let me find it here. Uh, 
I must also thank Wes Craven and what Robert Eaton. Without the two of them, these films would have never existed. Wes died while this book was being written, and he was mourned the world over. The impact he left on the world of cinema is one that will never be forgotten. I grew up in a turbulent home and saw many things a child should never see. I first discovered the nightmare films at age six, and they saved me. I was able to forget about my own situation and allow myself to live vicariously through the films. And then I go on to say... Uh, thank you, Wes, you know, for sh allowing me to escape my own nightmares by showing me a few of yours. Yeah. Well, that's, you very, know. <clears throat> that's very powerful, but it, I, I don't it know. It was, and it was not an easy thing to write. Right. You know? But I, I, I need to tell you something. Horror films will, will destroy you, and they'll ruin children. So <laughs> everything you just said was a lie because I know – because politicians, preachers, yeah. everyone has told us that horror films will destroy you. I'm he joking, told me that. My stepfather told me, if you grow up as a fan of horror films, I might as well just look for you in the newspaper because one day you're going to just finally have enough and you're going to brutally murder someone and you'll have these films to thank for that. So again, <laughs> he was a very small-minded person. Yeah. Well, I, I think, but you know, I think that's true. You talked about vicariously living through film i was actually reading uh george R. R. martin did an introduction to a book about old science fiction stories and it's funny that your dedication read a lot like his in that he talks a lot about you know he grew up not well to do at all and he walked five blocks and he said those five blocks were my world but when the first time somebody handed me a book or said oh we're gonna go see this movie and he says that became the bigger world, and I yeah. think you 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 nail exactly the same phenomenon. I mean, I I grew up watching a lot of science fiction. That's kind of what I love, and it's the same. I have a very similar story in some ways, in that that was the escape from the fact that there were a lot of concerns, there were a lot of worries, but it also let me know there's going to be a tomorrow. It it may be it may be a struggle. But there's something else. I thought he was going to go in, there has to, to be, be a morning after. Actually, <laughs> what he was going to tell you, there's going to be a tomorrow. There he was having a very heartfelt. But he's going to become oh, Soylent oh, Green. You ruined it. That's, You're that's welcome. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is the level of respect I'm used to. Obviously, so obviously you're not familiar with the show. <laughs> but, no, I, I mean, I, I wasn't abused, so I don't, have, I don't have the same story you have, but I have the broken home, latchkey kid. That was me. Uh, Chad, you were kind of a latchkey kid. Your parents were working, right? I mean, yeah, they had, but I mean, there was always a parent at home, but yeah. No, no, I didn't have that. Yeah, Screw it. Chad had a wonderful childhood. <laughs> oh, I had a parent at home, but you know, whether or not he was operating on various drugs. Yeah, right. was, yeah. I didn't, have, it was just simply, I, mm -hmm. I had a mother who was a horror film fanatic and she, for some reason, when I was six years old, decided now's the time for my son to watch Nightmare on Elm Street and scarred me for life. But you know, that's, I'll, I'll be honest, I came to the party late. Sorry, guys. I mean, I, I didn't see it as a kid because my parents were overprotective and were much more the, if we show him something, he'll imitate it and kill children. Um, <coughs> but, you know, the other side and of that is... come to bear. 
you know. Uh, but anyway, the uh, it's come to bear that rooster has came home. Uh, Them chickens have come, come home, home to, to roost. roost. Uh, anyway, my uh, but you know it's, it's funny because my wife was introduced to Freddie, and Freddie is one of her all-time favorite characters now, mm-hmm. as far as horror characters. But it was by a babysitter, and the babysitter intentionally showed her the Nightmare on Elm Street film, thinking this will scare her. She'll run to her room, and I'll be able to do whatever I want, you know, the rest of the evening. Exact, exact opposite. And she, <laughs> she said it scared scared me, but it just made me want to watch more. So she said I would sit there, you know, five, six years old, and and she said, you know, watch them all. And yeah. just, and so, you know, being somebody that arrived late to the party, I probably didn't see him until I was a teenager, it's so funny, though, because I do hear these people that, you know, I six or seven screaming. or eight, and it's the story they remember. It's, it is why they can recognize Freddy. I can show my right. wife other characters. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's funny because, um, what was it, uh, Chad, you said you were uh, six when you saw Nightmare? Yes, sir. That's the same age that I was when I saw it, and that's what I've read in this in this uh in my acknowledgement section to you guys, I was six when I saw it, and it just, it, I was way too young to see it. But by six, I had already seen uh, three failed marriages between my mother and her husbands, yeah. and, or two, and then she was on working on the third marriage, and he was a drug, drug addict and an alcoholic who drove a taxi cab, yeah. as she did. And I just already, I had seen so much of the worst that life had to offer at six. So really, I, I, what I saw in the movie wasn't. It, it didn't have the effect on me that it probably had on a lot of Well, see, for me, people. sorry, Blake, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's okay. Go no, ahead. You know, for me, the scene with the body bag in the school in the first <laughs> one. So my elementary school, keep in mind I was six, just started, uh, I was in kindergarten or first grade, doesn't matter. Um, I went to this school that was built in the early 1920s. Yeah. And, uh, you know. What was know, the name of the elementary? <laughs> Baghdad. <laughs> Baghdad, Baghdad Elementary. Elementary. Baghdad um, Elementary. But it was old. It was really old. Um, and everything had been, everything was still original. <laughs> it was vintage. Still, uh, it was, it was yeah, vintage. It was still know, in the Middle East. Fourth, uh, <laughs> my fourth grade, uh, after my fourth grade year, they actually tore the, tore the school down and moved us to a different school. That's how old it was. But um, no, it was hard. It was, nobody hardly ever went upstairs in this school because there were, uh, we just lost Blake. Oh, there you, hey, there you are. Oh, okay. I don't know what just happened, guys. <laughs> you went here. to buffer mode. But, <laughs> um, but no. Uh, <laughs> nobody ever went upstairs. Um, all the classes were downstairs. The upstairs was pretty much off limits. For some reason, as a child, I decided to go upstairs, and there was rows and rows of lockers up there. And I literally had a panic attack. I remember this to this day of waiting to see that body bag coming down the hall. <laughs> So yeah, completely different experience. That's, that's than... a beautiful story. Oh yeah, <laughs> it really, it really is. And like I said, I, I don't know. I'm gonna play devil's devil's advocate here and ask you guys: Did you read the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read some of it. I have not been able to finish all of it. I'd be lying if I said. Which I had. one did you read, Joe? I read Which, some. Did of you the... read the Within or did you read Razor's Edge? I read some of both. Actually, I haven't been able to finish both of them. Well, I'm, sorry. I'm gonna ruin it for but you. But my cue, Freddie dies. And well, hold on. I want to tell <laughs> you that my cue next to my bed with that eight-month-old of books is a little high. That's the one thing. I my, understand. That's well, the one thing my son is taking away I, from I me. I just had a show where I was on, and they said, Blake, this reads 
so well, and it and it and it doesn't retcon anything that was established in the films. But also the way you describe the deaths, mm-hmm. it's gory and it's disturbing, but it's not over the top so much so that you can't read it. And see, keep in mind that was I was writing this while my youngest son was five or six months old, so I was keeping pretty uh, pretty psychotic hours anyway, yeah. staying up really late doing it, and. Uh, yeah, so there were several times in you know in writing this where I was like, this has taken me to a really, really dark, dank, just unwelcome place. You're so, living it. In a sense, yeah. you're living it, yeah. Yeah, and, and what you read, I mean, you get the sense of it very early on that Freddie's life and the nature of his, the nature of the events surrounding his birth and the nature of the events surrounding his early childhood were just about as awful as any of the things that he did as an adult. Yeah. I mean, just about. I mean, obviously murder wasn't a part of the equation, but the abuse, um, the neglect, uh, the situation with his mother and how she came to be pregnant with him was very um, disturbing and very... uh, It was was very much something you don't forget. Right. And... Again, if you watch the films, in each film, you get a little bit about Freddy's backstory. But what you don't get is a full, uncensored, complete telling of that. So that was my goal. Um, I don't know if you guys know him, but you probably do. His name is Andy Mangles. He wrote the Nightmares on Elm Street comic book series for innovation. He's also written books on the X-Files. He's written books on Star Wars. He's actually written Wonder Woman as well. Wonder Um, Woman! Sorry, had to do it. His notes, he had compiled some notes of some names uh, for the original 20 kids that Freddy killed, and that timeline, gentlemen, would be 1966 until his murder in 1971. So... The 20 kids, I had their names for him. But what I did was I took the names and then I constructed the story and filled in gaps and made it where not only are you seeing the original 20 murders that he committed, you're also seeing the destruction of not only the innocence of the town, but the innocence of the people in the town uh, outside of Freddy that are there witnessing this. And one of the parts, one of my favorite parts of the book is at the very end, when the fire happens, obviously, if you've seen the films, this isn't a spoiler, Freddy dies, he gets torched, he's burnt to death by the parents of Springwood uh, because he had basically gotten away with the 20 of their children's murders. Um, So, Freddy's on fire, and Donald Thompson, who you know from the films, is Nancy Thompson's father. He He is a sergeant at the beginning of the book, and then he becomes a lieutenant towards the end of it. Uh, he throws the blanket on the charred burning body of Freddy. And then, you know, they torch the inside of the building and set it on fire. And he call, he's going to call it in, uh, that there's a fire. And he looks at his wife who has got Freddy's finger knives, his claw glove in her hand. And he looks at her and looks at the glove and he says, get rid of that fucking thing. Mm -hmm. And then he calls it in. And to me, that is the most poignant moment because not only is it the destruction of 
of Springwood as an innocent town, the destruction of the innocence of the children, but it's the destruction of his character because by that point, he has seen the worst that life has had to fucking offer right in his town. And Frederick Krupp, you know? Right. And it's the destruction of the parents' innocence as well. Well, they became what they, they rallied they, so hard against. They, they became absolutely. murderers. Absolutely. They, 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 and, and I can't say if any of us were in the position... That we would do differently because we're all parents... And, right. And, right. And yeah. This is something I don't know that, and I hate those cliches, but I don't. And I'm a new dad, so I these two have been giving me. I do say things that they've been saying for years now, but um, that you just, you just, yeah. And you and you would burn, you would burn down any town to save your child. You would burn down the world. And it's just. And that's know, what they did. They burnt down their world. They, they burnt, burnt down, down their world. Springwood. So Ohio. it's not just. You're absolutely right. That's it's very enlightening. Well, but, but I do have a quick question. I'm sorry, and I want to get back to it. Okay. And this is a. I don't know if you've been asked this, and if you have, I hadn't seen it in the other interviews, and because it just occurred to me, what the difference? Because Freddie's fictional. It's fiction. What? You're a real person. What's it? What, I know. <laughs> but well, you had a. You had a very. Terrible sounds like a terrible childhood, and I, I'm sorry for that. But what do you think you had other than that Freddie didn't? Do you know what I mean? Why are you what now? Do, what did I have that Freddie didn't? What do you have? Does that make sense? What it makes, does, yes. What, why did he go left and you went right? What I had that Freddie didn't was the motive and the means to make it better for myself in the opposite direction. I grew up with the bad things, but instead of but instead of saying, oh, I've been shown all the bad, Agreed. it would be so easy to do that. I took, to paraphrase Robert Frost, the road less traveled by, Agreed. I guess, and went the other direction because I thought, I have seen so much horror in my life. What if I could take that, turn it on its ear, and show nothing but the best that I can from me to someone else? Would that make a difference? Would that make it change? Would that make it worth it? And it, it has. I mean, I go to these conventions, and I mean, the last one I did, a woman walked up to me, and she hugged me, and she said, Blake, I just, I have to tell you, I'm so proud of what, you do, what you've done for the character, and I think, sorry, sorry. Mm-hmm. I think that Wes would be so proud of what you've done with his creation. And I want you to know, no matter what anybody else says, I think what you've done is something that is great. And you've kept the spirit of a character alive without taking it and going the completely other way as far as the dark parts of it. And you've kept it relevant for, for the younger generation for people that didn't grow up as fans of the films. And she hugged me. And that was like, that's one of the most memorable experiences i think as a as a professional in this business that i've ever had and it makes it worth it when i can go like you know when i met you joe you know i was sitting out there hanging with uh with mick and yeah it was so cool because so many people up there in that area they didn't know who i was but where i had just come from downstairs everybody knew me and it was so nice to be able to just sit up there and and get to talk to people and not be not have to talk about Freddie at that moment and just kind of get to see everybody else and how it, the inner machinations of how it worked for them, all the people in that panel yeah, and, and, you know, and everybody that was there and yourself. I mean, it was just wonderful to be able to see that and be a part of it. And like I said, I feel really privileged, you know, Robert and, and Lisa and, and Nick and everyone else, they always have nothing but the greatest things to say about me 
and they always wanted me to have me included. And I think when the books came out, that's when that's what got me the job with Mick. You know, as as you know, a partner for him because he obviously doesn't. Mick doesn't need a partner. Mick is one of the most talented, hardworking, and creative people in uh, horror cinema, uh, and I think in cinema completely, just uh, as a as a whole, even not even just horror, but he shined in horror because you know he he was a fan of comic books and, and you know he grew up with those things and he liked the horror films and uh, it's just he's such a creative soul and to be able to work with him is a dream come true and I really have to say that. Uh, it meant a lot to me that you guys had him on the show because it was deser- well deserved for him. Well, he has had an amazing career. All those things are true that you said, and don't tell him I said this about him behind his back. <laughs> but he's a he's a good man. He is. He yes. is a good man. He's he a good. he's a he's a to steal a uh, Yiddish term. He's a real mensch. He's and a- and. That ass. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and I also heard from Hayden that, 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 that I was ass. highly, highly <laughs> mentioned to me earlier today in our conversation that uh, he that he highly recommended me, which was kind of, you know, I was like, okay, cool. You know, I just, I didn't expect him to recommend me to you guys. Oh, yeah. But we, we were happy and we were starting out and I didn't know you. And I'm so sorry I didn't know you when I met you, but... It's one of those where I never get to go enjoy the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we. You know what I mean? Going out and actually walking down around and looking. You at You know what? You have a pretty cool job. You met another friend of another two friends of mine recently. You got to do a panel with them. When I was in the music business, I came across Amy Jo Johnson, who yeah. everyone knows was the original Pink Power Ranger. She promoted my first album. I have a lot of my fans and a lot of my career to thank. You know, as far as uh, thanking, I have her to thank. And then uh, Jason. You know, you had Jason there. Jason was with her. And yep. You guys had a great time with him. And, uh, you know, it was so fun when I was working on my first record. I would talk with him in the mornings and he was like, oh, man, I, I want to go work out. And, you know, it was so funny because he said his two favorite things to work out to were the music of Corn and the music of Tupac. <laughs> and just imagining him, you know, in his in his gym working out to that stuff. Going and back and just forth. Man. Having fun with it. It's just Jason is one of the coolest people ever. And. Again, those are people I grew up watching on TV. I didn't expect to meet or befriend any of these people. I mean, you're talking about Jason David Frank, the Green Power Ranger, right? That's yes, Well, and uh, yeah. yeah, it's a great gig. I love doing it. But uh, those two, uh, I give them full props. They needed a moderator like they needed a hole in the head. Some people need it. Some people don't. Those two people were very entertaining, and they didn't need me. They, but but you know what? If I was glad to see you there. And well, I, and I appreciate I, it. I could I could tell that you enjoyed it. You like you said, don't get to really go experience the show as no, much. I, but you don't see that by your demeanor. The way you present yourself is a, a professional, but you're also a professional with a really really positive personality and an attitude oh, well, that is you. all about the event. You know, oh. and that's something I noticed. Uh, at Lex- in Lexington when I met you at Scarefest. Uh, well, the, re- the reason I, uh, if for our people who are listening, I'm getting a very weird look from Chad. Chad is my longest relationship in history with anyone. <laughs> uh, consistent relationship. <laughs> Chad, Chad and I met in college. We need to do a tell-all about the boneheads sometime, how it all came together. No, we don't. Yeah, we do. Hey, if you do a book, I'll be happy to write it <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't want to actually do the effort of writing. I just want to do one of those and with... with with Blake there you go that's what you that's what Mick told that's what Mick told the guys last last week when I had the interview with them he said you know what they asked him what I do for the book and it was just so funny they didn't mean it in any bad way it's just the way that it was uh, the way they articulated it was funny they were like what does Blake do he said what Blake does is Blake takes these ramblings of mine 
and and directs them into a structure so that it is told as a story instead of a series of disjointed, you know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, fragments because Mick will tell you if he hasn't already told you, he was born with a disability. He was born without an inside voice, so he yells. <laughs> and, and also, to paraphrase him, he does say that, uh, and he said in, in the book, you actually get to, he actually says this in the book too, and behind the screams. Uh, Blake, you know me, and you know that oftentimes you and I are both hearing it for the first time. <laughs> yeah. Meaning is sentence struck. He says, what I do is the sentence comes out of my mouth, but I have no fucking clue where it's going. <laughs> I can't control the direction. And I think that's beautiful that he's able to admit that that's the first step in correcting the problems. <laughs> he's, he's turned his disability into an ability. You had a question, yes. James, I cut you off. Well, no, no, I actually, I wanted to talk about and talk about the other uh, book, the within. Okay. Yes. And I wanted to talk about, so, Re, uh, creating an origin for an established character, how does that differ from creating this entire world that you created for the within? How and which one is more fun? That's a beautiful question, by the way. For anybody that's not watching, he just or listening, he just delivered this amazing question that is not one I get very often. I'm so, sorry, I was sleeping. What was the question? I, <laughs> he was playing. He was doing the elbow thing again. We weren't recording for that. Old, I greatly oh. admire writers. <laughs> old man Jennings will wake up for the pudding cup later on before we take okay, him back to the right, home. Uh, but so, <laughs> so the difference is when you have an established character you have to be very careful when you're writing uh, something for that character because those rules have already been established there's already been a clear set of boundaries for that that character and i think that one of the biggest mistakes a writer can make in producing a work based on a film you know any whether it be a novelization or whether it be a uh telling of a of an uh, established origin story is the fact that you have have to stay within the canon of the established universe. And that's one of the things that I did. And, and these other guys, and like I said, I, uh, it's a question I didn't you know, get very often. It's not what I get very often. It's definitely not a statement that's delivered very often. They said, uh, they said it this way. Read the book, and there, there are not moments in the book where I feel like anything is retconned. Nothing is forced. It's very natural. And... There are odes to characters that you're going to meet later on in the films. Uh, for example, I'll give you this this one: um, the character of um, the characters of uh, the Parkers, Kristen Parker's parents. Kristen Parker, we know from Dream Warriors and the Dream Master. You know, it was Patricia Arquette in Dream, in Dream Warriors, and then it was Tuesday Night in Dream Master. And that character, being introduced to those characters, her the mother's name was Elaine. Being introduced to them like that, it sets you up because it shows you that they were involved, that the parents of the children in Dream Warriors were directly involved mm -hmm. with the murder of Freddy Krueger. And I think that keeping that established, it puts, it bridges the gap because there are going to be people that read the book that haven't seen all the films, but there's also going to be people that read the book that have seen all the films ad nauseum. And I know mean, them maybe just as well as you do. 
Yeah, oh, I, and I am not saying I know better than No, you. no, and, and we'll be looking to tear you apart about it if you get anything wrong, right? I mean, you've got to... Right, right. There, there, there are people, that, and that, that is okay that people are that. It's okay people feel that connected to it. But again, there is a, there is a, a, a borderline between, you know, tearing somebody apart yeah. and being mean and crass and threatening about it. And, and, and a constructive and, de- and destructive criticism can both be, they're both okay on a level, but when you take it to another point, um, that's when it does become problematic. And that is also something that, I, that yeah. I'm familiar with as a, somebody that has taken a story, uh, you know, taken a character and established a backstory for him. Um, there's all, there's been a lot of positives about it guys, but there have also been some negatives and, uh, there are some people that, and, and again, it's just, it's not everybody's taste. There are people that think that Freddie was a homeless drifter and it's scarier for them that way that he just kind of drifted through town and lived in his boiler room layer. But for me, it is always scarier when your next door neighbor is John Wayne Gacy or your next door neighbor is Andre Chikatilo or mm-hmm. your next door neighbor is Albert Fish. I agree because with you see them every day. You work with them. You eat lunch by them. You go check your mail with them. You may play, your kids may play with their kids. You don't know. And that to me that makes it scarier when the person living next to you is is like that, and and it's something that's not impossible in our society. It is something that happens often that the person next door is not the person that you think they are. And I think that's another point I was going through with the book is uh, Springwood. Uh, you know, is this idyllic appearance, you know, of Springwood, but below the surface, beneath the surface of Springwood, is this rotting canker sore of evil and it comes to a head and just it explodes in the form of of freddy krueger and uh from then on springwood is just ruined i mean it was the ruination of an entire town sort of almost like how uh the the salem witch trials left an indelible impression on you know Massachusetts yeah. and, and uh, you know those other you know and other states that had similar uh, things like that and to me that was part of it was to talk about the destruction of the town because it is written a lot like a true crime or a historical fiction or a historical nonfiction piece there are still elements of the supernatural don't get me wrong but uh, to me I wanted to show more of the man before he was the monster with little inklings of the supernatural because we all know about the supernatural that happened later. But that was the other part that was interesting is telling the story of human Freddy versus dream demon spawn from hell. Freddy. Mm-hmm. They're two different sides of the very same coin. One is just a little bit more fire scarred than the other. Yeah. You know, so, but anyway, I digress. Let me get off that. I, that was very long and rambling. I'm sorry, James. Oh, uh, no, you're fine. But no, that was the difference. And with the characters that I created, the Davises and with Father Morgan in uh, The Within, it was taking something that was very, that was that was very um, popular in cinema. Uh, lately, there's been a resurgence of these possession films, and um, and of course, you know, we've all seen The Exorcist. And if you haven't, you need to get off your ass and go see it, <laughs> yeah, because it is a seminal piece of horror filmmaking. Another one that was a book that became a movie. Um, And I wanted to kind of show that in a more modern context with the, you know, advent of cell phones and, you know, internet and, you know, this idea of a script that can infect the reader with this evil influence to me was something that was quite different 
as far as an idea or a premise. Well, I, so. I, I think um, one of the things that I like, and I don't want to give away the ending. Um, because <laughs> the book has been out since 2016. If people haven't read it yet, well, I'm know. trying to give me time. But okay, all right, me. don't ruin it for Joe. He's there is he's, a he's sensitive. There is a what, what <laughs> you have I have no idea. <laughs> uh, what I really like, and 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 Joe has said before that you know he is uh, as he said in a previous interview, he's a failed filmmaker. I am a somewhat still failed writer. Uh, so I really appreciate writing. And I just the, failed. Well, we I think we're all three failed writer filmmakers. <laughs> uh, but one thing that I really like, uh, you do have that pivot at the end, so to speak, where I, the way I read it at least, it's one of the things of, was there just bad or is the bad just coming out because of an after effect of everything else? And and Right. It's the uncertainty. It's the uncertainty because when you read it, you're like, did all that, was all that a result of the the infection yeah. by the script? Or was that, like you said, some sort of subliminal kind of hidden uh, effect within him? Uh, <laughs> knock, knock, there's your within joke there. <laughs> uh, no pun intended, or maybe it was, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, was it was it already there and this just exasperated it and made it worse? Or did... Even this point, did the essence that was in the script, did it somehow latch on to uh, the feelings that Alex had pushed down within himself that were already there and it just latched on to someone with the, when it can detect the presence of those feelings. And again, it leaves it open for lots of things. I've actually, I've got people trying to get me to do a sequel to it. And I mean... The ending is such as it could be, yes. Okay. But, you know, again, it just it depends on how I feel after. Because Mick has put me on for three books, guys. Not everyone else knows that. Oh, I've been I didn't trying know to buy him to do three books. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, Behind the Screams, The Dream Masters Revealed, which is the book that's on part four. Well, that's all I was about to say. Let's hold on. Let's go through these because I want to make sure that our audience knows about them. You know okay. that you're going to be doing a Kickstarter for Behind the Screens, right? We That's just want to make correct. sure that yes, they get our information yep. about it. So let's talk about the first book that you're going to be writing with Mick Strong. It's going to be about Nightmare 4, correct? The making of. That is. It is uh, Behind the Screens, The Dream Masters Revealed. And, and uh, that is mixed coinage, not my own. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought it was a really interesting idea for a title because The Dream Master is the subtitle to the film. Right. You know, it's a Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the, you know, The Dream Master. But the dream masters that Mick and I are referring to in this book are not the people in front of the camera. Right? The, it is the, you know, they are the people behind the camera, the right. ones that uh, oftentimes don't get the credit. I think that, uh, that they should because movie magic is, is very important because if you have a great actor, but your effects and your production design don't reflect the talent that the actor has, then you have something that feels like it's trying too hard and failing or that it has put a lot of emphasis on one particular thing in order to make up and distract you from the fact that the other thing is lacking. Right. So that is, that is something that is very important. And with this book, the production team, the effects team, you know, we've got all these people that have contributed. Uh, Steve Johnson, you know, who created Slimer for the Ghostbusters, he did the uh, effects for Nightmare 4, the death of Freddy with the giant, you know, the torso. And then there were, you know, with Bart Mixon, who did uh, Tim Curry's makeup for uh, It, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for Pennywise there, he worked on it. And then Nick Benson, who, you know, I've got his torso here. He did it and, you know, worked on that film. And then Bill Forsh, who you saw his script earlier, you know, and then you know, people like people like Mick and, and people like Peter Chesney, you know, uh, from Image Engineering and Tom Loughton and R. Chris Biggs and just everybody that had a hand in this because the the pitch for the book was this. And I thought it was a really novel idea. We all know as fans what went on in front of the camera, but how many of us really know what went on behind the camera? What led to the making of this great movie? Because at the time that this movie came out, it was the most popular one in the in the series and, and stayed that way until Freddy versus Jason came out yeah. uh, in uh, 2003. And it was the highest grossing of the original series uh, up until that one as well. So, um, it was also one of the one one of the first Elm Street films that set the kind of tone for having a really amazing badass soundtrack. Mm-hmm. You know, Drama Rama and Sinead O'Connor and the Fat Boys and the Vinnie Vincent Invasion and the Divinals and and Billy Idol and then of course you know all these other great you know it was just it was just on the cusp of everything that was popular. MTV was on the rise and it was you know hitting its peak and becoming something just amazing. And, and then, you know, you had uh, all these special kind of camera effects and all these kind of uh, things that happened with the making of this film that had not happened prior. And then you had the writer strike, which not a lot of people know. There was a writer strike happening at the time the Nightmare on Elm Street 4 was in production. And when a strike is going on, if your film has started production prior to the strike, you are okay to put their names. Everybody's okay to get credit where credit is due. But if your film starts production after a strike has happened the name can't be on it mm-hmm. so they started this film more or less without a, a really a finished uh, developed script it, relied a lot on the effects and that's where mick you know is famous for his junkyard sequence from three and then brought that back for four and then the dilapidated elm street house the rotten house and then the kaleidoscope room there's just so much mm-hmm. that he was involved in and the truck the truck crash where it hit nothing that's a great story that we're going to talk about in that, in that now, book. Now, hold on one second. You just said that, so I'm going, to, I'm going to put this. Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is actually entertaining. What's your excuse, Michael Bay, for Transformers 2? <laughs> Same oh, story. Yeah. Same story. And Mr. Bay, wasn't he also involved with, he was involved with the remake of Elm Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. He owns Platinum he, Dunes. He, I wanted to actually ask this earlier as well, because I okay. think Freddy is a timeless character. I think the fact right. that kids today, so eventually you know somebody's going to try to remake it again. And I think it can be, I think Robert is is part of it, but I, I do think it's like James Bond or something like that. I think it can be done well, well that's, that was with be someone my, else doing it. That was going to be my question. What do you think it's going to take <clears throat> for there to be another efficient, good Nightmare film because the nightmare remake is a, something that because well, we don't and, know your again, opinion. Two of huh? we don't know your opinion, but we 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 the three of us pretty much think it's I it's love, awful. Jackie it's, Earl it's Haley. Boring. I give credit to. I like Jackie Earl Haley as an actor. Yes, right. He, right. Just I right. think what it's going to take, and the, you know, with the film, I think a lot of the problem that people have with the film is that. There was so much CGI involved and not a lot of practical effects. And I think that's what people that were fans of the original Nightmare on Elm Street films were fans of would have, would have been the practical the practical effects. And, um, you know, again, I don't have a problem. I mean, I, I, 
I don't have a problem with remaking the film at all. Um, but I just think it's going to take what it's going to take is it's going to take, uh, you know, more practical effects because I think that there is a, there is still a market for that, you know, and there's so much digital going on and so many people now just don't like that. They don't like seeing something and knowing that they're looking at something that's digital. You want to see something like the transformation into howling or, you know, American werewolf in London and be like, Oh my God, I'm watching this guy turn into a fucking werewolf. That's what's happening. Not like, Oh, I'm watching a guy turn into a werewolf via CGI because right as he was, right as the eyes changed color, there was a buffering moment. Yeah. yeah. Or whatever. You don't want to see that. And I have no problem with the marriage of practical and digital effects. If they're done right, I have no problem with that. Um, And it's just people, people are very, picky about things that should be remade and should not be remade. There are a lot of people that believe that films like Nightmare on Elm Street shouldn't be remade at all. They are seamless pieces of, you know, modern cinema, and they shouldn't be touched. But, again, it's to each their own. I have no problem with remakes uh, if they're done right, and um, they uh, take care and pay attention to already established canon. The other thing, too, is with modern horror films... You know, the singular horror movie monster, you know, there really hasn't been a, a figurehead as, what was the last one, Candyman in the mid-90s? Was that the last one? I, I, know, I, know, I know there was the, the, the girl you know, from Mick the ring. Mick did that one too, right? Mick worked on Candyman. Yeah, 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 yeah. we know. He but told there, a great story on our show about yeah, it. But Go back and watch uh, that episode, it's a great story. But there was, I mean, there's the girl from the ring. <coughs> I mean, the Babadook doesn't even count because it really wasn't. Well, no, it was, that was more could, of a psychological thriller. You could, speaking of Robert England, you could talk about uh, Leslie Vernon, yeah. which is allegedly getting a sequel. But I mean, that's still—it's almost a parody of what—not yeah. a parody, but a. But I mean, I there's know. there's Hatchet. and it's not. It wasn't. Well, I like Hatchet, but it wasn't. It's not like a staple like Freddy Krueger. Like there nobody's talking anything. about Victor Crowley. There hasn't been one in over twenty years at this point. And now we know Hollywood in filmmaking, everything's circular. It's always going to come back around. I see your. Point. It's just a matter of when. But nowadays, people don't really want to see a horror movie with that type of figure in it. Because you have, look at the big horror movies now. You have A Quiet Place, Get Out. The even Bob, if, and Haley like Saw, but even Saw doesn't Saw really a, wasn't about. It doesn't really, I, I don't know that you could show a picture of, and Haley, what do you think? Could you show a picture, who's the guy that plays? Toby. Tobin Bell. Tobin Bell. I don't know that I could show you a picture of Tobin Bell, and you might know, but it's not the same as Frankenstein, Dracula, or Freddy. No, when you, when you think of Saw. Do you understand Saul, what are we saying? Yeah, when saying? you think of Saw, you think of that puppet. Yeah, I think you think so, of the puppet, yeah. You know, what I think of when I think of Saw is that amazing soundtrack. As a composer and a, and a songwriter, I really love the soundtrack. That's my favorite part of the Saw Haley series. actually got excited. Behind, she was going, yay. It's, she loves it, too. <laughs> but no, that See, was, I think I think Haley should host the show. You guys need to work behind her. I agree. I agree. We've tried. We've <laughs> tried to get her over, over here. here. <laughs> More than once, Blake. More than once. But no, I just wonder if, if the you're talking about doing a remake. I mean, I just don't know if... The, the current American audience is wanting to see a, a figurehead in, in a monster, uh, like an actual movie monster. It doesn't seem like it's happening anymore. Yeah. Uh, again, I think the time will be right. You know, It, the remake of It was a good time. Yeah, box yeah, 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 you got a point. Pennywise. Pennywise. Yeah, yeah we can't leave him out. And a lot of people were against... A lot of people were like, well, he's not, it's not Tim Curry. It's not the same. You're right. It's not Tim Curry. And you're right. It's not the same. But what it is, is it's a fresh take on a character that he 
uh, fleshed out and, you know, he became, uh, and, and it's done with uh, a modern, more modern edge. Uh, and it's still creepy. Um, and, you know, and, and it's one of the first films in years that I saw, uh, opening, opening, uh, the opening week that it came out. And I wasn't expecting little Georgie's arm to get ripped out of the socket like that. My wife had to, cl- she couldn't watch it. And <laughs> I'm one of the people that, Again, writing these books with kids is one thing, but ever since Eric, my youngest, was born, I cannot watch Pet Cemetery because of what happens to Gage. It just it ruins me. It ruins I mean, tell Midkiff scream amidst all those pictures, birthdays, and yeah, Christmas. Yeah. And I was just like, That's oh, a great God. <clears throat> that's a great that's a great sequence in horror movie history, by the way. You're absolutely right. Because yeah, you don't really yeah. see the carnage, you see the memories. A bloody shoe. A bloody shoe and the memories. And anybody yeah. who's even has any kind of heart or emotion about yeah. it, that's what tears you apart. And yeah. you're right. That's the horror of it. But you but you know what the difference is, and I would say the difference between the Nightmare on Elm Street, and actually I don't even consider it a remake. That was already based on a book. That was a TV movie to begin with. Yeah. Is yeah. um it was good. <laughs> and I'm telling you, now that there's now we're starting to find out who the adult cast is going to be, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I didn't oh, think that yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah, think yeah. they could replace Harry Anderson. I was wrong. Bill Hader. Bill Hader. Bill Hader. Yeah. Guys. Oh yeah, and you know I was a fan of Richard Thomas. I really liked his his uh, you know Bill. You know Bill Denver. I really liked him as the character, but I really liked the uh, the cast. You know that they uh, have for the the film. I was really really pleasantly surprised, and then. Uh, it was weird. I, I remember seeing it. People were like, chapter two comes in. They were like, chapter two? I didn't know there was a second part. And I was like, well, okay, so that means somebody didn't, you know, some people didn't read the book, which is fine. But now it gives them incentive to go back and yeah. read the book. They didn't read the book or see the miniseries yeah. somehow or another. Yeah. But the miniseries, but, we're getting yeah. off topic. Yeah, yeah sorry. And, <laughs> we well, no, got... you're not because you know you're not getting off topic. You know why? Because I have experience as a screenwriter. I screen wrote. Uh, four episodes of a Nightmare on Elm Street series that was in production, which of course now being in what they call in Hollywood development hell, Hell. um, it it may never see the light of day. But I mean, as a screenwriter, I had to take basically uh, the idea I was given was uh, they approached me and the person that was playing Freddy for it was the official Freddy Krueger cosplayer. Uh, for the conventions, uh, he was, you know, actually named as the official. So he was like, "This is what I want. I want a, a more modern take, but I want us to go back to the beginning, so you see Freddy before he's the monster. I want that done." And meanwhile, the whole time this is happening, you know, my book has already been through the first draft, and I'm working on it. So I'm like, you know, there's just uh, there's a lot, and then having to compose things for the projects mm-hmm. and, and you know compose musical pieces. So it's like I've been involved in every aspect of filmmaking, including acting, because I, the film that I was the film that I did and had a, a role in was called Death Row, and it was a lower budget, which of course in this in the style of Nightmare on Elm Street and, and uh, Friday the Thirteenth lower budget films. You know you have what you have, and you use the best budget you have the best of it, you know, that you can get away with to, to have good effects and to have a good, uh, a good story. But its biggest claim to fame was it had a stunt coordinator from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 on it. And I had probably 10 or 12 lines. And I've never seen it on DVD. I've never seen it on Blu-ray. I would love to see it because I was a young man. You know, this was before the, this was right before I got signed and went and lived the rock and roll lifestyle. This was, I was still young and 
didn't have any gray hair and no nose ring. And I was just young and fresh and, whew, you know. I don't see any gray hair now. Yeah. Yeah, there's gray hair in there. Oh, just for man's working like a gangbusters for you. <laughs> Thanks. <Appreciate laughs> I'm just messing with you. But yeah, so I mean, I've been involved in all these different aspects. So writing a book and then being involved in screenwriting stuff. And that's why when Mick and I got along so well on this book about things that went on, because I understand from a production standpoint, the necessary requirements in order to make what someone's about to see believable to them. Because if your crew doesn't believe it, there's a good chance that your audience isn't going to buy it either. And if your crew isn't bought into the idea, your audience isn't going to buy into the idea. I totally, yeah. Right. And that's something else. I remember when someone asked me recently about the book, you know, about this death sequence with the twin girls in the Razor's Edge book, they were like, you know, I don't know how you did that. I don't know how you were able to stomach that. Um, And I said, well, after I wrote it, I read it and I was just, I sat for a few minutes and I was like, I can't believe that something like this just came out of my head because I'm sitting here rocking my son. Yeah. You know, he'd just taken a bottle and he was finally starting to sleep. Oh my God. It was such an amazing <laughs> thing when he started to sleep through the night. Um, and I'm rocking him. And then, you know, I've got my, my computer over here on the desk and then I look up and I'm like, I'm, I'm holding one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life besides my wife. And I just wrote something that when I read it, it made me sick to my stomach. And it elicited this disgust and this horror, this absolute just disbelief that I wrote something so foul and awful. And let me tell you, I'm not going to ruin any of the rest of the book for you, but I have to tell you, the kill that was referenced they were twin sisters, mm-hmm. and Freddie made the one sister watch her other sister die. Right. Now tell me in your mind what it would be, how you would rationalize that, and and um and sit and think. I just, what would it be like? How would you feel having to watch somebody you love die? Yeah. And there was nothing you could do about it, mm-hmm. and not even just die, be murdered, be burnt alive. And all you hear is her pounding on the inside of this pipe. Please, God, let me out, please. And then you have this man cackling about it, you know, sitting, watching with almost a sick, perverted joy, you know, uh, from it. It was just, it was an insane thing. And I mean, I've had some people offer to try to make it into like a fan film. And I was like, no, please don't. Because I don't think I could sit through and watch it as a fa- as a film knowing that those ideas came from my head yeah. uh, because I'm a nice guy, you know, <laughs> and this book is not nice right. on any level at all. Even with the justice in the end, the parents become just as bad as Freddie. Right. They become murderers themselves. So there is no winner here. There's no winner in war. Now we're going <clears throat> I already see because Haley keeps flashing the time on us. We're going to have to do episode part two because we want to talk to you about the screenwriting. We want to talk to you about your music. Yeah. And we want to talk about so many other things. So we okay. want to have you back. Would that be cool? That would be fine. I'm so sorry, Haley. No, it's fine. No, no, it's fine. It's uh, no. I'll explain no, it to hold you. On. You better be sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> I explained to you. That, that's oh. my tough voice. So, if it, is it okay <laughs> that we end on the one, the three books? So we got the one out, right? 
and the Kickstarter is going to be coming out with that. Right. What is the second and third book? Do you mind talking about the that? The second book um, actually uh, is going to be on Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Mm-hmm. And then the other book is going to be uh, something, of, which I can't go into that one too much, but it will be something along the lines of movies again. But again, it's all basically, it's all movies and it's all stuff that Mick worked on and stuff that he contracted, you know, because I didn't realize I was going to be put on for a for three books but hey i did want to let you know we are running a contest on behind the screens that you see right lately in the video yeah yeah oh it's amazing what the contest is is a you know nightmare four of this great soundtrack so what you're doing is is going to submit a review for a, a song that you like off the soundtrack it doesn't matter which one and if you submit the review to um the uh email address and we read it and it gets picked to go in the book, then it goes in the book, and then you also get a thank you in the book, and you also get a free copy of the book. Oh, okay, cool. So that's, right. that's just a little incentive because we're just so excited. Everyone else is excited about this. I mean, my inbox is blown up. My God, I mean, I'm getting, you know, uh, three or 400 friend requests a day. Wow. And it just, it's, it's ridiculous. I'm trying to get everybody over to my author page. A friend request website. is when somebody you know, wants to website. Website. You know, Isn't that? Did you hear that, Blake, what he just said uh, to me? I told him uh, that a friend request is when somebody wants to talk to you. He doesn't know what those are. He, he doesn't. Oh, that's He doesn't. <laughs> does oh, people, uh, all, we get comments. It's like, you guys are so mean to each other. And they should hear the crap before and after the show. <laughs> oh, yes, what I'm saying. I've seen some of the promos for you guys. <laughs> and I was just like, uh-uh. Yep, <laughs> we can be. Yeah, so well, hey, check it out, guys. What do you think? That's my newest acquisition. That's beautiful. Oh, you know what's even better? It's a guitar for people who are listening to us. Thank you, Haley, on iTunes and SoundCloud. Yes, what is better? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to be really good, guys. <laughs> That's awesome. So we're gonna have you back on again. We will. Uh, we're gonna cut in a second. And you want to stay on for a minute? Is that okay? You got in a few minutes. Yeah. So we yeah, talk I'll about stuff. Minutes. and we schedule that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So thank you so much, Blake. It has been a pleasure. I now know what we have in common. You want to know what it is? Everything? No, not everything. <laughs> a mutual love and admiration of being geek and being a yes. nerd. Absolutely, of, of monumental proportions. Of monumental proportions. Yeah. And, and no matter what creed, no matter what political background, no matter nationality, what we will always have this common ground. And Mixtron's ass. God, it's hot. <laughs> oh. So what, should the next book be behind the scenes? Is that oh. what that should be? <laughs> beautiful, huh? That was beautiful. And on yeah. that note, thank you so much. It's been like, best... You are? James Alice. Still, what are you doing with the hands? <laughs> All right. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mrs. Bonehead, and we are out. I'm making a salad. You know, when I, when I uh, met you in Lexington, well, I had no idea about anything about bonehead humor, but I have to say I've watched a handful of episodes and I like them so much that I'm going to go back to the very first and go on a binge of them because I do <laughs> like that. I like the the uh, uh, 
the dichotomy between your uh, personalities and the way you interact with the guests. Feels, <laughs> I feel like I feel we course. can get him a counselor now. I feel, I feel like he should skip to like the tenth episode. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>